Welcome to another episode of This is Hot Boga. Uh, before we get started, we'd like to thank a few companies for making this podcast possible. First up is Sturka Optics. We've been using their glass for a long time and love the quality and the, the amazing warranty that they provide. If you want to learn more about Sturka Optics, go to sturkastrong.com. So next up is Hill People Gear. Uh, we've had them on as a guest before. and We've talked to some of the, the owners there, and they're a great bunch of guys. And Jimmy, you're actually... We're both running the Decker packs, yeah, and we can literally put anything we want yeah, into, into these packs. I mean, we, we go out with our, our ground blinds, our tree saddles, and everything else we might need. So we got out there. and Daughters. Daughters. daughters we'll throw food. a few kids in there. And we love it. They haul weight well. They're durable, American-made, and uh, an amazing company. Check them out at hillpeoplegear.com. We're avid outdoorsmen and conservationists, and it's important to us to work with brands that are both high-end and care about the world in which we live. Enter United by Blue. For those of you who don't know, United by Blue is an outdoor gear and apparel company that is dialed in on ocean and waterway conservation. We run a lot of their clothes just on the street. Jared went on a hot date with one and his wife the other day and uh, wore a few uh, United by Blue pieces. Really impressed her. Good quality product, good quality clothing. And for every purchase that you make, they remove a pound of trash out of the local waterways around you. And it gets better. When you uh, go to make a purchase, enter Hot Boga at checkout to get a uh, nifty little discount. Check them out at unitedbyblue.com. New Breed Archery! We love New Breed Archery. Uh, I've been shooting their bows for a while. A while is in a year? A while is in a year. It feels like longer. It does feel like longer. We're getting some new bows put together right now. Custom dipped. Jared, what are you going to be shooting this year? I'm going to be shooting the ETX 35. All right. And I'm going to be shooting the RK1 because I'm a true... Uh, true traddy? True, true trad hunter. And mine's going to be in some uh, really special custom colors, which I'm excited to announce, but I won't announce yet. Stay tuned. Head on over to New Breed. Look at their options. You might just fall in love. Before we get to the episode, I have one last announcement, and this is for our Michigan listeners. Our friends at Long Range Archery and Firearms are hosting their yearly open house this August 17 from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. This is the fifth year they've been doing this, and this will be the biggest, baddest, and best open house they've had yet. There will be prize drawings and giveaways, food, drink, and factory reps. Oh, and yes, of course, deals store-wide. We'll see you August 17 at 2530 Venomin Drive in Holland, Michigan from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's going to be an awesome time. We're really excited about it. Hey, John, how are you? Good. Yourself? Great. Long time no talk. How have you been? Well, I got some bad news today. I went into the doctor and uh, had an MRI Monday on my shoulder, and I need surgery. My biceps ripped up on my top of my shoulder, and I've got a little bit of probably going to need a little rotator cuff surgery while they're in there. How did you uh, how did you manage to do that? I have absolutely no clue. <laughs> Just <laughs> wear and tear after sixty-eight years of hunting, I guess. Shooting big and bucks. Fishing. Yeah, dragging them out might have had something to do with it. Climbing trees. I don't know. That's I, what you got to tell everybody at least. <laughs> it sounds good. Yeah. I shot such I had a the big right buck. one done in two thousand. I'm sorry. I said I saw, shot such a big buck. You know, I tore my rotator cuff. Uh, you know, that's the life of a whitetail hunter. Dragging it out. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> I had it done in 2008. I kind of sent a message to Matthews today. Uh, I'm trying to get them to make me a 30 to 40 pound bow because I probably won't be able to start shooting a bow until wow. mid-September. Well, you got to do what you got to do. Um, that'll That's enough to get it done, right? Oh, absolutely. Done it before. Well, hey, you know, thanks for coming back on. This is uh, a bit, you're kind of a first for us. You're, you were our first guest 
And um, you actually are our first second time guest. Well, that's awesome. Thank yeah. you. It's exciting. You know, I, I'm excited to hear how your uh, your 2018 went. I mean, last time we talked, it was early summer. You were prepping for um, hopefully a good year. How did it turn out for you? Terrible. Really? <laughs> I did uh, not. I never saw a shooter buck, not even visually at a distance in Michigan, which isn't really that uncommon. Right. And then I did, when I went to Kansas, I did hit a nice buck, just a nice one, not a monster, but a mid-140s nine point and I did not recover it. I took a straightaway shot. I had a lot of issues with, with my bow before I went. The sight fell off, the rest fell off. I had some major issues, which I've never had any of those issues really? in that, all my fifty plus years of hunting. That's not that really it's, old sight I saw the video of that's taped on your bow. It is. Well the tape didn't fail. That that sight is bolted onto the bow. So right. It wasn't that. It was just it, one of the screws loosened up that held the front carriage to the, to the actual frame of the site. Oh. And it fell off and went down and hit the concrete the, the very morning I was leaving for Kansas. And then no. I put oh, that back hard. on and, and then the rest fell off. <laughs> I've, and I've never had any of that happen in 50 plus years of bow hunting. And it, both of those things happened the same morning. You know, maybe it was time for a replacement. Normally, people don't go however many years that you had uh, that that site going. So, maybe it was time. And it is everything's being replaced. What are you uh, What are you going to do with this time? Well, last year I hunted with a uh, Halon X, so I switched bows wow. uh, mid season and okay. sh- shooting a uh, Carter release. So I'm totally changing everything up. I've got a new black gold sight, a couple yeah. black gold sights ordered. Yep. And I'm going to switch to a traverse this year. I, I've got a 40 to 50 pound traverse they sent me. Uh, now I'm going to have to try and get a 30 to 40. Now okay. that I know I'm going yep. shoulders. Nice smooth bow. Are you, you're, so you're shooting a thumb release. Yes. Okay. How is that? How's that switch been going for you? I'm shooting the thumb release for a very specific reason. I have a tremor. Okay. My dad had a really bad tremor when he passed away when he was 84. I'm 67. And uh, I have a tremor. I think I might have an issue hooking up my release to the loop right. with a conventional wrist release. So the thumb release, I can just leave it on the on the loop all the time. Just reach up and grab yep. it. Yep. Yeah, I used to do that with my my compound. I just hook it on. My fear was always to bump it and have it click off right at the worst time and have it you know fall into the you know out of the tree or whatever. You know, you I'm going to carry an extra one, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> you hear a dink, it hits every uh, tree screw or uh, step you got strapped on or something, and all the deer know you're there. That was my fear the whole time I had that. Uh, I had one of those. So, Or losing it on the way in. I, I'm prone to lose things that aren't tied to me. That, that's, you know, that's always something that I've <laughs> been thinking about. I don't lose things. I nope. never lose things. You don't strike I, me nope, as a guy nope, that loses things. Have- I can have a pair of sunglasses for 10 years and never, I just I keep track of everything pretty, pretty well. But Yeah. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. So last year it was, it was a rough year here in Michigan. You, you went to Kansas, had some trouble there. You, did you get any, anything? Well, it was rough for me. It might not have been rough for anybody else, but it was rough <laughs> for me. Yeah. So what, what kind of, you know, when you're looking back on the year, what kind of trends are you seeing? What are you, uh, what are you, what are you attributing, uh, you know, your, the lack of success in Michigan to? Just hunting pressure. I mean, in 2016, I killed two buck bucks in Michigan. I killed the only two pulp and young bucks I saw all season. Nice. 2017, I killed one. 2018, you can't kill them if you don't see them. 
and on right. the properties that I were hunting, they just didn't exist. So, yeah. which is not uncommon in Michigan at all, not to have a Pope and Young buck no. on your property. No, you know, I don't see too many Pope and Young bucks on my property. So yeah, I, I totally get that. So and you're out seeing- of state, when I go to Kansas, I saw, I saw at least a dozen Pope and Young bucks in Kansas. Oh, sure. Week. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit different out there. Michigan's high pressure. Do you see more pressure this year than, you know, the past years or about the same? About the same. Yeah. It's, it's pretty consistent. Michigan being the most heavily bow hunted state, about 320,000. So on the properties that I hunt, yeah, it's, it seemed to be pretty steady. One thing I have seen an uptick in from people that email me and follow my Facebook is a lot more people are kind of hunting public land. They're getting this saddle thing is just, Holy, yeah, it has. Holy Sheesh. Off. You got me there's considering a, it. I, uh, well, there's an article that I just got it today, Peterson's Bow Hunting. There's yep. a 10-page article right in the center of the magazine, Saddle Up and Strike. And then I didn't write it, but I'm in it a lot. And then in Deer and Deer Hunting, there's an article that I wrote about saddle hunting, and it's, it's in the current issue that's out right now as well. So it's just getting a lot. Basically, the two guys from Tethered, who, yep. who are making yep. the Manta saddle. Greg used to own a marketing company and he's very in touch with social media. And man, I've been waiting for this thing to take off because it blows tree stands so far out of the water. It's not even a comparison. Oh yeah. And it's just taken somebody with good social media skills in this day and age to get this thing launched the way it should be. And, right. and it is definitely, it's definitely happening. Well, I think I saw even uh, Mark Kenyon used a, a, a saddle this year too. Yes, he did. And he did a, I think he's got about a five minute video on his YouTube channel or on his Facebook. I don't know which one, but yeah, he gives a two, two thumbs up. He, he actually loved it for filming, which he thought would be a negative. He loved how comfortable it was. And he said, unless he's going someplace where there's a preset stand, he doubts he'd ever run out of a tree stand again. Yeah. I mean, it, just having to figure out a way to connect it to your pack and haul it in and out and the noise and, you know, everything else, the, the less stuff, the better. And it's, it's a pretty simple, as complicated as it might seem, it's a pretty simple system to set up. So, you know, I can definitely see why people are finally kind of coming around to that. Well, you don't really have to set it up on your pack. I mean, I carry mine in my pack because it's about the size of a softball and weighs right, about a pound. Right. Um, but you, most people actually wear them in because the, the heaviest saddle made right now is about two and a half pounds. Right. And you can wear them in, just fasten the buckle around your waist and wear it in if you want. I don't, but yeah. I mean, it's it's nothing to carry in, nothing at all like a tree stand. And you can probably yeah, 40 yeah, right. trees and on yeah. any of them anytime. Well, you, yeah, that's what, that's what I mean. With the tree stand, you're, you're locked in. You got to carry your platform around or, or your, your, your whole setup if you got a climber. That's really cool to see. Um, those guys are doing great work at Tethered. So, yeah, more, more power to them. So, bad, kind of a rough 2018. What, what is that doing for your, your plans for this year? Or, or is it not really changing what your, your typical prep time is? Not really. Not really. Some of my early season locations last year did not have master fruit. So, this year they. Sh- should which should make a difference there was a couple on one piece of property i'm hunting there was a couple of two and a half year old bucks that i bumped in december when i went in to shoot some does for the freezer Mm -hmm. so so they should be around this year and hopefully they'll be big enough to shoot there's not really going to be a whole lot of changes i'm going to prep i've already prepped two new tree stands up tree locations i'll probably prep at least two more yeah so i'll go into season this year with about 44 Forty locations okay. ready. 
Yeah, that's uh, and oh. and I I spent some time you know looking at some of your videos, and it's funny you bring tethered up. They did that video of your your setup, and it I really just want to know how is the minivan running? <laughs> <laughs> when it's parked outside the gas station, and if you walk by it, you can't even tell it's on. <laughs> it's running great. Yeah. It's a Toyota, <laughs> so it's not a USA, but it's a. And and the reason I own a Toyota is because Toyota and I believe Honda are the only two minivans where the floor is completely flat from the front part where your feet are when you're driving all the way back. Right. A lot of the minivans, think Chrysler, um, Nissan, they have, once you get behind the front seats, they they have about an eight inch or 10 inch step up. Yep. So you can fold the seats into the floor and that, that narrows your headroom too much. So right. the, the, with the Toyota, you can actually take out the middle seat. So the floor is level, gives you a lot more headroom and more it's, storage area. It's basically like a connected big, you know, pickup truck uh, with the bed covered and everything. Yeah. Is, is that why, and we haven't talked about this before. Tell me about your strategy, I guess, uh, with, with the minivan. Well, with the minivan, you can, uh, first off, it's out of sight, out of mind, basically. Nobody looks at a minivan as a threat. It's not intrusive. And basically, when I stop, if it's raining out, if it's cold, if it's snowing, if it's windy, I don't have to get out and walk around behind the pickup truck and stand on something in the rain and change my clothes and kind of reach up forward and try and grab stuff because everything's packed up in there. I like to be organized. I'm an extremely organized person, and my minivan is laid out. And if anybody went to my Facebook page, there's a link to it. It's laid out where I can just fly behind the seats, leave the heater on, leave the radio on, listen to music, listen to news, whatever, yep. and change my clothes. And basically when I slide the side door open to get out, I got my bow, I'm dressed, I'm ready to go. So I, I don't step out into the weather until I'm fully dressed. Now you've got this thing decked out four wheel drive lifted with some you know, mud tires on it, right? <laughs> no, it's just a standard minivan. There's not, it's not a four wheel drive. It's a regular minivan so you're not getting stuck on and, those back roads or bottoming out or anything like that no most of the public lands in michigan and what few private parcels i have uh, public lands have all guard railed in parking areas so i'm not driving back down any old two tracks or anything like that you yep. know you're just parked in a little guard railed off parking area and walking in you can't drive into those places for the most part right so you're parking you're when you when you first got your toyota I would assume this is pretty much knowing how you, you do your scent control. You had to have descented the car itself, I would imagine, right? Uh, yeah, I don't let anybody smoke in it. I don't obviously don't use any scent wicks in it. Uh, I do have a little ozone thing that just prior to season, I plug it into the cigarette lighter and let it run for a few hours while nobody's in the van, obviously. Yep. I'm not a big ozone fan, but as far as taking odors out of things, it works, it works pretty good. I'd never use ozone over my head, but. As far as taking orders out of stuff, it works pretty good. And I only do that once a year, and that's just prior to season. Yep, clean it out, get just ready to just go. Just clean the orders out of, all order. yeah, yep. out of the van. Oh, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I watched that video. I was, I was cracking up because I'm seeing you change in the back, and then the part that, other than the minivan, that, that cracked me up was the absence of collars on most of your, uh, your clothes. <laughs> Tell me a little yeah. bit about that. What, what's the deal with uh, removing the collars from a lot of your hunting clothes? Well, let's say you own a base layer. Lots of times base layers will come with a collar. Then if it's cold out and you put on another, let's say, in some sort of an insulated layer, let's say you put on a fleece vest, everything has a collar. 
Yeah. So you get yeah. two, three collars underneath your sunlight jacket, which also has a collar. Then you got three or four collars. And there's no need to have three or four collars. All it does is it starts to choke you and make you cough. Puts a lot of pressure on your on your throat. So what I do is when I buy anything is that's going to be below or underneath my exterior snotlock suit. I obviously leave the collars on my exterior suit. Right. Anything else below it that has a collar, it gets cut off with a pair of scissors <laughs> immediately. I, I could care less about cosmetics. I have no interest in resale value. I'm about killing animals and making it as comfortable as possible. Too many collars is not comfortable for me. You know, it's interesting you say that. I, uh, I'm a big hood guy. I like a hood. So for a while, all that I would get would have a hood on it. When I'm bundled up, I've got like, it feels like I've got like six hoods bunched on top of each other, which is a pain because <laughs> you're trying to figure out which one to put on and then you got to put them on in order and they're bunched up behind you. So that, that's actually a pretty, pretty good idea. It's, yeah, it's the same exact concept. Now, I'm not a hood guy. I hate hoods because hoods cover your ears and it, you know, hampers your hearing. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a exterior jacket having a collar and then i put on a head cover with a sound like head cover with a drop down yeah. face mask that tucks into my neck area even if it's raining i don't like a hood on a rain suit i want i want i still want a collar and then i'll wear a rivers west radial hat over top which leaves my ears exposed yeah i saw that it looks like a baseball cap that you'd wear in the sub-saharan africa you know with the the thing that kind of comes down behind you that works pretty well for keeping the uh yeah, kind of- the rain out Kind of like what uh, fishermen wear, you mm-hmm, know, to keep mm-hmm. the sun off your back, your neck, and bone fishermen when they're out in the sun, bone fishing down in the Keys. Yeah, it, it basically what that does, it rains on your hat, and then the rain flows down the back of that big flap that overhangs your jacket, and then it just runs down the back of your jacket. So none of the rain goes inside your suit. Yeah, but okay. But yet your ears are still exposed so you can hear so you can hear better, you, you're covered, and yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it just, I mean, like you said in your video, you don't need a whole lot of fabric covering your ear to, to keep you warm. Right. Before we move on, I wanted to take a minute to thank one of our show sponsors, Pelican Coolers. These coolers are extremely tough and backed by a lifetime warranty. But what I like most about our coolers is that as tough as they are, they can be opened with the push of a button. So it'll keep the bears out, but you won't have any trouble getting in. And it gets even better. Right now, if you type in pelicancoolers.com slash hotboga, you'll get a free tumbler with the purchase of any cooler. And we all use the uh, 32-ounce tumbler, and it does an amazing job at keeping hot drinks hot for a very long time and cold drinks cold for a very long time. I'm going to do something maybe a bit unusual or something that I haven't done yet, but I'm going to throw out a James D. Guarantee, which is something I don't just toss around willy-nilly. I'm going to James D. guarantee that if you buy one of these coolers, you'll have the best cooler experience you've ever had, and you'll be changed as a person for the better. Your life will be totally different from here on out. So don't take my word for it. Go check them out for yourself, pelicancoolers.com slash hotboga. And now, back to our show. So, you know, you use, and we, we talked a lot about this in the first um episode we had you on scent control is huge for you strict regimen probably the most strict i've ever seen do you use ever anything like you know the hex suit that that blocks those electromagnetic waves or anything else or merino or anything like that or is it strictly scent lock covering something warm underneath i'm a huge activated carbon guy mm-hmm. okay scent lock owns the patent on using activated carbon so in hunting garments, obviously I'm a sunlight guy because they own the U.S. patent on using activated carbon in hunting garments. But as far as 
the hex suit and any of that stuff. No, I've never, I, I can't really speak intelligently about a hex suit because I've mm-hmm. never owned one because I've never had the need to. Obviously, if I pick, if I'm at the point where I pay absolutely zero attention to wind, which is where I've been for 18 years, I'd never get winded. There's no reason for me to look for something else because what I'm doing is working. I am a huge Merino wool fan. Okay. I don't wear a lot of Suntlock base layers. I use a lot of Merino wool base garments yep. because they're warm when it's cold out and they're cool when it's warm out. And I'm my preferable brand is Icebreaker. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Merino, anything touching your skin, at least for me, I try to make Merino. Even um, this past season, I started my first run with Merino undies. So First Light has these like kind of long boxer Merino. And I, I took them out to Colorado and I didn't change for a week. Uh, I had the same underwear on. And uh, I didn't get it, didn't, gross, it. It is a little gross, <laughs> but you know, I like to think that I'm a product tester and I'm really d- devoted to uh, making sure, you know, the things I talk about really work, but I honestly, it didn't smell. I felt like I didn't even need to wash. I could have gone another week. I didn't. I washed it. Mar- but- Merino wool. Yeah. Merino wool actually has some absorptivity and I, I actually wear Merino wool undies as well. They're expensive. They're like 25 bucks a pair mm-hmm. just for one pair of briefs. Uh, and their icebreaker. You're using First Light. I'm sure it's the same exact stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Merino wool definitely has some absorptivity. And I can remember at a local sports shop, I used to rep icebreaker and they're out of uh, New Zealand, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're huge in Europe and they're huge in the outdoor market, but they're not that well known in the hunting market. But they're the most premium Merino wool manufacturer in probably in the world. Yeah, that's interesting. And it keeps the smell away. It keeps you warm. I mean, it's I love it. It's yep, kind of changed everything. Awesome. And it keeps you so warm uh, for how much weight it adds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Merino wool, not that heavy. <laughs> no, no, it's yeah. so light. I it mean, they make like different weight of it. Yeah. So it's, it's so comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, it's spring now, kind of just coming out. I would imagine it by you two. I know it's going to be raining now until probably this weekend up by you. But um, we're, we're entering spring which means there's a ton of work to be done in the whitetail woods. But going before we talk about what you're doing in the springtime, tell me a little bit about what you've done the past few months to prepare for the 2019 season. Well, I've held my uh, workshops. I do these whitetail workshops, which are all in the spring. They're all done during postseason, so people can actually take mm-hmm. something away from it because all my scouting and location preparation is done during postseason. Uh, so those are done, and pretty much all of my postseason scouting and personal location preparation is done. I've got two more trees to prep, but I've already scouted. I know exactly where they need to be and what I need to do. I just haven't actually right. done the location prep yet. When so you're fi- when all, you're finding- all of my spring work is pretty much done. Okay, yeah. When, when you're finding those those locations, what are you looking for? If you're 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 finding a new area, you're finding a place to hunt. You know, I, I know you use a lot of aerial maps and topo maps. Um, what are you looking for? Well, I use aerial maps just to give me a rough idea of where I want to start looking because I, when I'm hunting, when you're hunting in a heavily pressured state like a Michigan or a New York or a PA, you can't do what the guys on TV do and just look at an aerial map and say, hey, there's a nice pinch point and go in there and kill a deer. Right. You, know, you, you, you have to look at aerials and get an idea of places to start looking. But until you're on foot and you know what the bordering properties are doing on a pressure, you know, pressure wise, you you can't tell until you're on foot. What I'm looking for is I'm looking for bedding areas. I'm looking for mast or fruit trees. I'm looking for primary scrape areas. 
I'm looking for pinch points. I'm looking for an area that might have a pool of water and there's no other water for a quarter or a half a mile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking for things that are destination locations. I'm a right. huge destination location hunter. Yeah. I just don't carte blanche set up on a couple of runways and say, this is good enough. That's That doesn't work for me. So you're you're looking to hug up against something, like you said, like mast, fruit, uh, water, by a bedding area, that kind of thing. In a in a bedding area, I yeah, never okay. hunt. You go I don't in. hunt perimeters of bedding areas. I hunt interiors of bedding areas. Yes, and so I set them up this time of year, and then I don't go. I don't physically go in them until pre rut bedding areas. I don't hunt until pre rut rut phase. You know, late October. But my food sources, like at a mass tree or a mm-hmm. fruit tree, those are places where I would hunt early season if they're dropping. If they have food and are dropping food. Every location has has a rhyme and a reason and a plan. You know, it might be a might be an early season location. It might be a secondary secondary location where I'm just doing a big viewing area. It yeah. might be a rut phase location, pre rut. Might be a morning location only. Might be an evening location only. Everything has to have a plan. It's not just a location. So you're 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 looking all over finding places like that, and you you find these bedding areas. And your your strategy is hunt them immediately upon pre rut. Don't worry about messing it up for later times because you only might hunt there once or twice in the entire year, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, a bed interiors of bedding areas, I don't go in until like late October. And then mm-hmm. I, they're very strategically hunted strictly all day. When I'm hunting in an in interior of a bedding area, I'm in there two hours before daylight. I hunt all day and then I leave a half an hour after dark. So I'm right. in there before any deer coming into the bedding area. Yep. And I wait in my tree until a half hour after dark, after all the deer have left the bedding area. So I'm not spooking anything with my entry or exit. And on the bedding areas, you have to have a pristine scent control because you will have deer downwind of you oh, at sure. some point in time. Because yep. they'll get up, they'll feed, they'll kind of lay around. And, and if you're in there, they're going to be... Well, during the rut phases, they're chasing. Right, sure. Yep. During the rut phases, I mean, let's be perfectly frank. People, there's lots of people who keep bedding areas as sanctuary areas, and I, I don't get that. I don't understand that concept at all. Why sit on the perimeter and listen to bucks in the interior chasing and, and doing whatever they're doing, and you're sitting on the perimeter? Uh, yep. that, that's ridiculous. You want to be in the interior where the chasing and the actual breeding is going on. Right. There's tons of entry and exit routes into a bedding area, but more once you get into the bedding area, everything is more confined and condensed. So your percentages of a kill per hunt are much, much higher than sitting on the edge, hoping they're going to come out or go into the bedding area during daylight hours, right. which is pretty unlikely in a pressured area. And that's all dependent on the fact that you are you know, so confident in your scent control, because if you go in there stinking, you know, there at some point you're going to blow out the whole, the whole area, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. If you went in, if you went into a bedding area with a poor scent control regimen, yeah, you are definitely going to blow it up yeah. without question because you will spook deer during the daytime. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So it's spring you, now. you will have deer downwind of you. Okay. So, so you're doing this right. You're doing this right now or you've already done it um, in late winter. Yeah, those are all done. One, okay. uh, I wouldn't say late winter. It's all done uh, typically late February through the end of April. You know, as soon as the snow melts, I never, I never ever scout while there's snow on the ground. Why is that? Uh, because the sign that's left in the snow is totally misleading to what goes on in the fall. When there's snow on the ground, as soon as it starts snowing, deer totally change their habits. They, they will move 
you know, they're not going to stay bedded deep into the bedding areas like they did during hunting season. As soon as there's no hunting pressure and you get deep snows, they're going to move closer to the preferred food source and they're going to bed in lower ground so that they're out of the cold wind. Looking at sign left in the snow is totally irrelevant to next fall's movements because the deer have totally moved from where they will be moving next fall. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Other than rotator cuff surgery and your your workshops, what are you doing in the spring to prepare for hunting? So I, I don't know if, are you a turkey hunter right now? Uh, my turkey season opens on the 6th. Okay. Okay. Which is next Monday. Yep. Okay. And so I will be turkey hunting. Yeah. Okay. Where do you, you're, you're up in Northern Michigan for that too? Uh, yeah, I'm up around Mount, a little west of Mount Pleasant, which is kind of central Michigan. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, we're headed this weekend to uh, to hunt for the first season up in Big Rapids area. So, uh, pretty excited. We go there every year, and I love turkey season. So, yeah, turkey hunting's fun. It's very very interactive, and uh, it's kind of cool. Are yep. you are you when you're out turkey? They're pretty hunting, easy to get, but <laughs> yeah, I know it's like you can call them in. And what? It's fun, especially if it's private land. We've, you know, it's it's easy and, and fun, and I guess not always easy. Don't don't hold me to that. But a lot of times it can just be <laughs> very interactive and exciting. So when you're out, very much so. when you're out turkey hunting, are you scouting for deer sign? Are you looking for anything? You know, it's it's May. Are you are you doing anything of of that sort? Nope. Usually for turkey hunting, I do exactly what I do for deer hunting. I go in before I actually turkey hunt. I find where the roosts are, where they're coming down, and I try to intercept or I look for a uh, a dusting area. We got one phenomenal dusting area where hens, hens come in and dust between 8 and 10 o'clock in the morning, and then the towns come in after the fact, you know, checking on those hens. So yep. I do a little bit of pre-turkey season scouting for roost areas and stuff like that as well and when i'm doing that no i'm not necessarily looking for deer signs if i happen to see something that sticks out at me yeah i pay attention to it but i'm not looking for it no what would be something that you would see that would stick out at you and make you think you know maybe worth checking it out same things uh maybe a a scrape area or scrape line on an old runway from the previous fall Mm -hmm. or maybe i find a white oak that i hadn't seen before or a lost apple tree back in the woods that i hadn't seen before something that would be a destination spot. I'm all about destination hunting, all about destination locations for deer hunting. So you'll, you'll see. And obviously. Yeah, you'll see. I was was just going to say, obviously (laughs) you go. I think there's a delay. Uh, I, I, you'll see a scrape line. And if you're a destination hunter, are you following that scrape line to bedding area or food? I think they scrape to bed. Is that how you approach something like that? It depends on where the scrape line is. It depends on the scrape line and it depends on the, I, I totally hunt different in Kansas than I would hunt in Michigan. When I'm in Michigan, if there's a if there's a scrape line, that means there's there's obviously that's going to be along a runway. It's yep. going to be along a buck's travel route. So if that travel route is from a bedding area to a feeding location and it's right along the edge of or within excellent security cover, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd possibly set up on that runway because he's got excellent security cover to transition from point A to point B. If it were just a runway going through an open woodlot and there's scrapes along it, mm-hmm. no, there's no set it up because in a state like Michigan where the he- uh, pressure is so heavy, uh, they're not going to be using that during daylight hours. So all the sign in the world is meaningless if it's not sign that's going to be visited during daylight hours so everything everything in michigan revolves around security cover 100 percent of everything i do in michigan security cover security cover security cover if there's not security cover i don't set anything up 
when you say security cover in Michigan, I assume you're pretty much just talking about swampy, thick areas, right? Because I think half of Michigan is swamp. No, not necessarily. You know, I'll have, I'll have some apple trees. I've got some white oak. I've got some red oak locations that are that have autumn olive around it. You know, it can be high ground. It's got autumn olive around it, or it's got it's got those pricker bushes around it with mm. the briars, briar yeah. bushes around it, stuff like that. No, it doesn't have to be in a swamp. It just has to have something where a mature buck can move along its edge and have instant security cover so if he gets spooked it can jump into security cover and immediately be gone for an exit route it you know it's, it doesn't have to run through 50 yards of open timber or open ground before yeah. it hits security cover because the, they just don't make themselves vulnerable for a long period of time they want that quick exit security cover sure so everything revolves around being close to security cover. It's not necessarily in a plum brush and swamp and stuff like that. Right. Obviously, when you're back in a bedding area, it's going to be a little bit denser than the norm. Yeah, no, that's that's actually really helpful. I actually, let me give you a situation that I'm kind of looking at right now, and I'd love to hear what you think. So I found a, a great rub line between essentially a fairly big field that's private land that connects with uh, public land. It goes basically almost right from the field to a pretty thick swamp that has a couple fingers that are out into the swamp where there's a ton of sign and stuff. Now, there are no real trees to hang in there, but I know that there's a ton of buck sign up in that swamp. And I would imagine, you know, if I get up in there, it would be fairly close to the beds, you know, something that I could maybe intercept early season. How would you approach with all those factors going on? How would you approach that situation? Uh, I would go in there this time of year. I would find one or two spots that has the most convergence of runways mm-hmm. or possibly a scrape area. Usually when you're back in heavy cover, yeah. you don't really see scrape areas that much. No, I didn't but see any You might there. see three or four. You might be, yeah, okay, but you might see three or four runways that converge. Let's yep. say there's a little opening and and runways tend to converge in openings i would set up if there's no trees i would set up a ground blind but there's no way i would hunt it during the early season that would be totally 100 percent left alone until like october 25th to october 28th okay and i wouldn't set up a pop-up blind i would set up a, a makeshift sure. ground blind made out of stuff with similar color to the surroundings so if you're in cattail marsh obviously you use cut some cattails someplace and use it for your brush in area in front of you, but you want to open up your ground blind area. It's got to be bare dirt. So you're not making any noise. Not crunching. Um, But if there's a tree, you're much better off in a tree. As long as the tree is not, you know, you watch these YouTube videos, (laughs) you see these guys up 12 inch diameter trees and there's no other trees around. They stick out like a sore thumb. That doesn't work. So you're better off in a ground blind rather than do that. But if you got a tree that it's 18 inches in diameter and it goes up there and it's got a fork 20, 25 feet up, you get up in that fork where you got some wood to give you some blockage cover you know, that's where you want to be. And with a saddle, because I'm a saddle guy, with you yep. being in a tree stand, you're much going to be much more exposed than I right. am. Because in a saddle, you can actually use the tree as a blocker where you got the tree between you and the deer. And you can okay. keep it that way while the deer's moving. Well, and actually, it works for me because actually I, I only hunt off the ground just because for various oh, okay. reasons. But I, I should work. My only thing is, you know, it's easy to kind of to see in there now. Everything's pushed down. Everything's kind of, and nothing has sprung up yet. When it's springtime, when right. it's summer, when it's early early fall, everything pops up and you have maybe a seven to 10 yard shot in there. I feel like you're right right up on them. Would you still go in with that close of a proximity? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And if you're not a scent lie guy, if you're, if you have to pay attention to the wind, yeah. obviously you're setting that blind up now mm-hmm. and you're going to have to wait for the proper wind that fits that situation when you do go in there. Yep. And it's definitely a location. You can't hunt it in the afternoon. It's going to be strictly a morning spot right. and you're going right. to have to be in there way before daylight. And obviously if you prep it now and you go in there way before daylight in late October, you're going to have to do a little bit of clearing. You're going to have to probably clear the ground in the blind because you're going to have some new growth in there. So you want to get yeah. in there a little extra early to clean that up so it is quiet to move around. And you may have to alter something a little bit too way before daylight. Yeah, and that actually, that's an interesting point because not only is it clearing it out, but getting there in the morning, getting out there so early, especially when you're getting back into the swamp. I mean, that could take another, you know, an extra hour uh, just to try to navigate or try to slosh through with waders you know, that, that adds an entirely different element for getting back there. You do what you got to do. My biggest, my state record buck I shot in 1981, it's not the state record anymore, but it was on public land. And yeah, I used waders to wade to an island back in a cattail marsh. So that was probably three sixteenths of a mile through hip high, hip high water. So you waded back, you, you set up, this was for a morning hunt, I would assume? It was for an all day hunt. Okay. So you get out there in the morning, you, you wade back there. And were the deer like moving from island to island? How how did that kind of hunt go down? No, it was a pretty big island, and they were coming in on the island to bed. And there was actually a big, uh, there was actually an oak tree on the island, and there was scrapes underneath it. It had some low hanging branches. There were scrapes underneath it, and I set up about sixty yards off those scrapes. What time did the deer? And come they out? were just coming in, and they were they were not really bedding on the island, but they were bedding around the perimeter of the island, or sure. where it starts to drop off into the cattails. They were bedded on the perimeter because the island was a little bit more open. And there was just deer would come up and go across that island from time to time during the day. Interesting. I've got a, a spot with like, there's like all these little islands like throughout a giant swamp. Maybe I'll have to check out getting back there. I've, I've up until this point. Oh, without a doubt. You definitely needed. You definitely need to do that. Absolutely. Okay. So when I'm approaching absolutely. an dry I'm, ground in a, I was going to say dry, dry areas in a wet swamp, cattails or whatever. Yeah. Deer are definitely going to bet on those. It, definitely during a rut. I mean, the people, because we got so much hunting pressure in Michigan, you know, other hunters are going to push deer back into those spots that are remote and out of the way. Yeah. Without a doubt, but you got to make sure you're back in there set up and quiet you know hour and a half two hours before daylight way before they get in there so you'll go once, back once they get in there and they are secure they feel secure they will move during daylight hours because they can hear any intrusion coming in you know after daylight they're going to be able to hear it from quite a distance if there's a human going through there so once they get back into those remote areas they, they feel pretty comfortable all right if there's a chain of them say there's like f- cut three or four little islands with with trees and stuff on them mm-hmm. where where are you setting up and like what what side of the island how are you figuring out where to put a your saddle well because i don't worry about wind direction the side right. is irrelevant to me obviously if it were you and you were worried about the wind Primarily, the wind's going to be out of the west and northwest, and that's the predominant wind direction in the fall. So you'd want to set up on the, you know, southeast side, you know, yeah. so that you're on the downwind side of all the movement across the island. But you'd have to basically go to every island at this time of year and see which island has the most sign on it from last fall, and and set up accordingly. Okay, interesting. Set up in the on the island that has the most traffic. Absolutely. How many a year? I shot. 40- I shot that. Eight, let me give you one quick key. I shot that state record in uh, 19, 
1981. And then two years later, I shot another monster over 150 incher on that same, in the same spot. So you found their, their spot. How many of your 44 stands sites uh, this year are in islands? On islands? Yeah. Uh, one islands within, these are islands in swamps. I'm counting. <laughs> I've never counted this before. <laughs> one, I pro- one, two, three, five. I think five that I can think of. Really? And they're all in tall, tall weed and cattail marshes. Interesting. So you're I out there talking to a good, good friend of mine today, and he found he found a little island and back in a cattail marsh uh, last weekend. He prepped. I'm gonna have to probably hit you up and uh, let you know where I'm, what I'm doing, and see what get a little feedback there because I'm gonna have to try that this year. I've got a bunch of spots with all these little islands that you know I've always found a ton of deer sign. I thought I don't know I'm gonna get back there. I've just never hunted back there, so it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It's but that's, a lot of work. That's what but it takes. Get out of it what you put into it. That's one thing about deer hunting. If you want to kill big bucks in a state like Michigan with any kind of regular basis, you've got to work harder than anybody else. Because if you just work the same as everybody else, there's no reason to expect any different results. You have to you have to go beyond where other hunters what other hunters are willing to do. Right. How many times if you want to kill big bucks? How many times are you sitting on these islands? Is this like a once and you're done? A couple times? What are you looking at? Once or twice twice at the most get and keep in mind i'm not doing that till like october 28th around halloween right so yeah once or once or twice and it's done now if i'm on an island because a lot of times you're doing that during the ride let's say it's october 10th or november 10th when you go in there and you you don't see squad as far as a big buck but you see other deer if you're seeing other deer and you're not altering their movement habits you're not spooking those other deer you're seeing does and maybe some subordinate bucks cross through there uh yeah i would definitely go back a second time for another okay. all day set because there's a good chance that the buck you want to try and kill if you if you know there's a good buck in that area he may be with a hot doe yeah during her 28 to 32 hour ester cycle so if he's with her during that cycle he has no reason to go anyplace else oh, so that's, down one, in there. that's one thing yeah. a lot of hunters miss is they'll hunt a hot rut phase location let's say they hunt it on a morning hunt or an evening hunt a morning and an evening hunt and they don't see anything and they get a little uh, disappointed well if it's during the rut there's an excellent chance because there's so few dominant bucks in a state like michigan or pa Mm. that that buck is with a hot doe during her cycle so he may have no reason to go searching for another doe until that deer that doe's cycle is over so he may be he may with a couple of be with a couple of does, and he may be with those for two or three days on their cycles, and then he has to go search for another one. So as long as you're not altering the doe traffic, he still has a reason to come there. As long as there's doe traffic during daylight hours, then there's possibility of a mature buck traffic during daylight hours there as well. Yeah. Once you're back in that heavy yeah. security cover. You mentioned before the influx of people heading out to, to hunt public land. You know, more people are getting into, you know, public land hunting and, you know, going far back and everything else, which, you know, a lot of times for me, then that means, you know, how can I find permission to hunt? Maybe public par- private parcels that are nearby my house, smaller chunks of land that maybe aren't getting hunted. Um, you, you do a lot of that too. I, I think I remember, right? Uh, I used to do a lot. I, Right now, I'm not really looking for another piece. I've got two private pieces plus several public land pieces, so I'm I'm not in the market for looking. But yeah, if I lose something, I will definitely go out and look for some new private parcels. And I talk to people all the time. Yeah. You know, I've turned down a couple pieces 
couple of people that have said, hey, you know, you're more than welcome to come and come and hunt with me. And I've turned them down because if you spread yourself too thin, you know, you're kind of screwing yourself a little bit. So I don't need anything else right now. Now, somebody, you're a Michigan guy, right? Yeah. Yep. You know, for the for the people listening to this from out of state, southern Michigan, which is mostly ag, is much, much superior than northern Michigan where I live. So if somebody from southern Michigan, through me talking to people, invited me to hunt their property if I knock on a door downstate and yeah, there's an excellent chance I, I would scout that out and if it looked good, set up a location or two and put that into my rotation. But at this point in time, I'm not really out actively searching for new property. Okay, I see. That's not to say next year I won't. I've pro- I've hunted over 100 different parcels in Michigan, 17 or 18 public land and that probably 80 private parcels. Okay. Wow. Okay. You're all over the place or are you you mostly in that central Michigan area? Right now I've got uh, one in central Michigan, one in southern Michigan and the public lands I hunt are all in southern Michigan. Okay. Okay. Well, you can send me your uh, coordinates for your spots uh, off the air um, and we'll, uh, we'll work right. out there. <laughs> well, they didn't work last year. so <laughs> No, maybe I'll find somebody year. else. Uh, so actually that's a, yeah. that's a good question. Um, so you're, you're so, you're, you're very uh, focused on scent control. Uh, does that limit the, the amount of times you take somebody else out hunting? Because I would imagine being so focused oh, on scent, it's like you don't want to bring anybody else in that'll mess that up. Big time. I'm actually scheduled to do the public land hunting guys. You ever heard of those guys? Um, I'll have to, public I, I land so. hunting or something like that. They're a bunch public? of young guys that are just the hunting public. Yes, yeah, that's I know it. those guys. Yep. Yeah, I think we're gonna schedule a DIY hunt on public land in Minnesota or someplace out, out west a little bit with those guys, and I'm really, really looking forward to that. So. Uh, so yeah, I've, you know, I'm I'm uh, always open to go on new property. I'm actually kind of a little bit excited about that. But back to your scent control yeah. question, they take camera guys with them and those guys don't do scent control. Right. I'm not going to take a camera guy with me. I refuse to take a camera guy because I don't trust anybody else other than maybe my kids and a couple of good friends on scent control. Mm-hmm. I've taken guys hunting that said they've had good scent control and they they sucked. They didn't have a clue what they were doing, which is what I see most of the time. Right. So, yeah, I'm very, very fussy about that because when I set up to hunt a specific animal, I'm not worried about scent. So if I got somebody, a camera guy or somebody with me and he doesn't have the same scent control procedure that I do, then my hunting is compromised because I don't take scent. I don't take wind into, into consideration when I set up on a deer ever. Now, are you, are you so, filming your own yeah. hunts or are you, um, I don't film hunts. No, you don't film hunts. How is anybody going to know? I have no know? interest in filming hunts. <laughs> okay. How's anybody going to know what? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. If it's not on Instagram, is it even real? <laughs> <laughs> well, if somebody wants to doubt it, that's their, that's their prerogative. I've got oh. the pictures with my aunt, my hands wrapped around the antlers to back it up. So oh. I guess that's about as real as it gets. So you're going to hunt with the hunt to hunting public. What if they show up and stink? Like they all smell physically. Well, we're going to go in. Our plan is to just take off, go to meet someplace at some public land and just go hunt. Everybody take off in a direction, different direction. So I hope they do smell. They'll be deflectors for me. (laughs) They seem like they do a pretty good job. They take some pretty good, nice deer. They had some, a lot of videos that came out last year that were fun to follow. 
Oh, they're great guys. Yeah, I, I actually met them at the ATA show. I don't. I have no concept or no clue how their scent control is. I know they won't come and hunt public land in Michigan because <laughs> they'd never kill anything. Uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, you know, they're out in Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa and Kansas where public land out there is better than most private land in Michigan. So, right, right. And that's where we're going to go. So it'll, it'll be a lot easier than anything here. So with these hyper, you know, sensitive deer in Michigan, are you uh, running decoys or grunting or anything like that? Are you making any kind of noise or anything? Uh, set? No, not, no, not really. I used to use decoys in Michigan. I don't use them in Michigan anymore. They're too, those tend to spook from them. They'll come in and get close to them and then they'll stomp their feet and snort and do peeky boo and then snort and run away. So they're more, uh, they're more of a disadvantage than an advantage. And when I say Michigan, it's not just Michigan. You know, you look at heavily pressured states, you're looking at Michigan, New York, West Virginia, Virginia, PA, you know, the Northeastern states, states that have high populations. So I don't want to just say it's just Michigan. Michigan just happens to be the most heavily pressured state in the country. But PA is really close to us. New York's really close to us. Uh, West Virginia, Virginia, those are really heavily pressured states. Something I've been thinking about, say say you could choose the perfect weather conditions and perfect area for those weather weather conditions for, say, uh, you know, maybe a November 10 hunt, maybe the peak of the rut time of the year what does the weather look like for you in an ideal situation and when that weather's like that where where are you looking to hunt i like a misty rain i like a drizzle i like a drizzle and next to some sort of a natural food source like a at an apple tree that's dropping or a white or a red oak preferably whites Uh, because deer prefer eating white so white over reds or at a primary scrape area i just think mature bucks in a pressured area because when they move through the woods when the ground is wet they don't make noise yeah so when my bucks walking through the timber walking through the woods and it's dry out every time they make a crunch of a leaf they stop and wait for a reaction right when it's wet they just tend to move a lot quicker and they're they can smell a lot better because yep. odors carry in in moisture a lot better i just think they feel they can move a lot quieter and they can smell a lot better and they just tend to move better during drizzle rain or a cold front. Interesting. So, so these things that we're talking about here, are, are these the types of things that you cover in your whitetail workshops? Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yes, they are. You bring yeah. people, you bring whitetail workshops. Yes, I do. Okay. So they, Saturday, they it's a two day event. First day's on location and at the end of visiting about 14 hunting locations, we, <laughs> I have a saddle presentation so whoever wants to stay and go through the saddle presentation can, and if they don't, they can go to their respective hotels. And then Sunday is basically an all-day seminar up at uh, a big seminar room up at Jay's Sporting Goods in Michigan. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. But yeah, we cover everything, scent control. We cover exit, entry and exit routes. You know, this lo- why did I prep this tree at this location? Why did I totally destroy this apple tree so I could shoot to the backside of it because big bucks only come to the backside and then they turn around and leave once they each eat an apple or two. Right. You know, they stay close to the security cover. They don't come to the open side. Is this a morning, you know, like apple trees? I'm, I'm shocked at how many people don't realize that if you're hunting at mass trees that are close to in ag areas, you don't hunt them in the mornings because at an apple tree, if it's dropping apples, there's going to be deer feeding there before daylight and you're going to spook them with your entry. So they're strictly evening spots or the same with a white oak or a red oak. Now you get it up, you go prep a 
oak tree that's way back in the timber, mm-hmm. several hundred yards off of a crop field, yeah, that could be a morning location, you know, because then the deer are going to be in the crop fields and then they're going to transition out of the crop fields right. before daylight and it's going to take them some time to get to those uh, mass trees. Uh, so you might possibly get an early morning opportunity at a mature buck on his way back to bed. Are these are these guys that are there and, and gals? Are they gonna are they writing you stories of success? You know, after taking your your course and, and things yep. like that. Really, I, instant yep. success for these. Yep, people. I've had every year. I've had what instant success for these people. I mean, they're turning around and they're turning into uh, whitetail assassins after your uh, workshop. I'm not saying they're turning into. Well, I'd say about twenty five percent of them historically over the last three years, well, the last two years, because obviously my workshops this year, they they haven't had season yet. I'd say about 25% of them typically are killing their best bucks that next fall that they've ever shot. Yeah. And that's why I hold them. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, let me say something. That's why I hold those workshops in the spring is because I hold them early enough where they can still go to wherever they're hunting and they will still have time to post-season scout before there's any foliage or anything popping up and, you know, prep some locations so they can still go back to their home and whatever state they're from and uh, scout and prep some locations before they get the green up of spring. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it's, I, I got to ask though, hunters as uh, fishermen are known for, you know, there's fish stories, you know, saying, oh, the, the fish was this big or, you know, you, you show up to a, a boat launch and you say, hey, where are the fish? And they'll point you in the wrong direction. Um, at these uh-huh. seminars, sure. is there a chunk of advice that you've withheld from everybody? Uh, that's your secret weapon, your secret no. sauce that you want. You're just sharing everything. I want people to be the best they can be. Yes, I don't. I don't hold anything back. What I answer every question. Absolutely. In the when they send me testimonials in the fall, you know, I've all, if somebody goes to my website, they can see the testimonials from from workshop guys. As you know, that killed deer the very their biggest bucks the very first year yeah. of the workshop that fall. So no, I don't hold anything back. No, I want you know what Michigan's at three hundred twenty thousand bow hunters. There's eleven million deer hunters in the country. I want people to be as good as they can be. People spend a lot of time and a lot of money trying to kill deer so why would i hold anything back i'm not that greedy if you know i'm not worried they're not going to be hunting in the same property i'm hunting so what difference does it make <laughs> yeah that, that's amazing um so there there has to be like a moment in the seminar where people are like having that aha moment where they're realizing that you know everything they thought up to this point was maybe misguided or totally wrong where is that in the seminar uh what what, what are you talking about where people all of a sudden are maybe catching what you're saying oh uh, uh probably the biggest thing the number one biggest thing is when I get in the very first tree at the very first location with my saddle and I disappear behind the tree. Mm. <laughs> so there's, st- I have them standing at the destination location, whether that be at a primary scrape area or underneath a white oak where a deer would be feeding or at an apple tree. And I get up in the tree and I swing around behind the tree and I'm gone. I'm totally 100% gone. If the guy's hunting in a tree stand, which most of these guys come into these workshops hunting from tree stands, if you're hunting in a stand, the stand has to be kicked off to the side. So you've got a shot to that destination spot. Right. So when the foliage is down, your odds of getting picked are going to be relatively high because you're going to be standing there for 15 or 20 minutes eating something. And they're looking around between while they're chewing. So you're, and there's going to be four or five, six deer there. Yeah. Your odds of getting picked are going to be pretty high. With a saddle, you've, swing around to the backside of the tree and you're gone. It's like, oh my God, wow, <laughs> John is just disappeared. 
I'm a deer. I can't see him. Right. That's probably the biggest instant aha moment because that happens real early in the first day. Right. Right. Because uh, on all these locations, usually half of the locations, I'm getting in the tree to hunt that location. Just and then I have them stand where the high, where the highest opportunity of where a deer is going to probably be when I take the shot at that destination location, and then I get in the tree and show them how to easily swing around the tree and take that shot or how, how I can move around and shoot any 360 degrees any direction. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. So it's, it's the, it's the saddle. Uh, it, and then from there on, you've got them hooked. Yeah. Two things that have changed my hunting more than anything else. And that's scent control and hunting out of a saddle. Those yeah. two things, half of the 50 bucks I've got in the record book would not have been killed by me had I not been using a saddle or had that type of scent control regimen. No doubt about it. Interesting. That's really interesting. So how are you feeling about 2019? You've got your spots picked out. You feeling pretty confident? I always feel confident. <laughs> I hate feeling negative. <laughs> yes, I feel very confident this year. And one of the, one of the, the guy that uh, owns the property downstate that lets me hunt, there's several other guys that he lets hunt on that property as well. It's 35 acres. And, but I'm the only one he'll let in the swamp because I'm um, the only one that has a good scent control. He's not worried about me spooking deer in the swamp. He's worried about the other guys spooking deer if they hunt in the swamp. Sure. So he's changed my criteria. He's had a real high criteria on what I could kill in the past, <laughs> and all these other guys kill the deer that I pass up on every year. Right. So he's lowered my kill criteria, so I feel pretty comfortable about that. And then, again, on that other place up here in central Michigan, there was two decent bucks that I, I saw in late December. So I know they made it through and hopefully they'll be big enough to be book bucks this year. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be exciting. Well, we'll, we'll oh, yeah, I'm always, I always, yeah, we'll, we'll look out for that. That's going to be um, exciting. 2019. It's already here. Well, John, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. Thanks for coming on our, our show again. Um, it's great to catch up with you. Oh, um, actually, pleasure. Before we go on, I'd love to, to uh, have you tell people where they can find out more information about these workshops. It sounds like they're really, really helpful. Okay. Well, they're done for this year, and I haven't posted my dates for next year, but they're at uh, my website is www. What the hell is my website? <laughs> <laughs> oh, just deer. D D E E R dash, a little hyphen mark. Yep. John.net. So basically, D E E R hyphen john.net if you just google my name john yeah. eberard it'll it'll come right up wonderful well thank you and we'll uh, we'll try to post a link to that um to your website and um like i said thanks for coming on and talking to us again thank you for thank you for the opportunity james appreciate it everybody thanks again for taking a listen to this episode head on over to our instagram page to stay up to date on everything that we're doing if you're feeling squirrely Go smash that subscribe button on wherever you're listening to this podcast. We and, appreciate it. And tell your friends that we are Hot Boga. Hot Boga. Hot Boga